Hi everyone, welcome to Seven Elite Masterclass Online Sessions. Uh, today, uh, we're joined by uh, another top guest, uh, guest that uh, I know, a guest that's uh, you know, worked with Seven Elite Academy in the past. Uh, great lad, uh, great ex-professional footballer who's played Premier League, played international football, uh, and we're, we're fairly lucky to have him with us today, and that's uh, Stephen Warnock. So Stephen, thanks for, for taking the time out and uh, joining us today. Yeah, no problem at all. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. So, as you know, Stephen, we're in this situation of uh, COVID-19. Uh, we're a few weeks into lockdown and so on. And, you know, there's most, how have you been? How have you kind of been coping through it and, and kind of getting by each day? It's not been easy. Um, I think it's a, a test both mentally, physically. Um, I think we're fortunate that in England anyway that we're allowed to go out. You think of other European countries like Spain and Italy who are on complete lockdown, not allowed to even leave the houses. They can go out for shopping and that's it. Uh, I've just tried to structure my day so that I have a bit of a routine. So I've started learning Spanish. Uh, so I do an hour's Spanish lesson every day with a tutor online. Then I have a bite to eat and then I'll try and have a run in the afternoon uh, or a bike ride. Um, trying to keep myself as active as I can, trying to get, sort of lose myself in the run, if you like, and forget everything that's going on. So that's the way I've tried to try to deal with everything. But I think I'm like everyone else. I'm missing, I'm missing being out. I'm missing being with people. I'm missing conversation, uh, and mostly I'm missing sport as well. In general, I'm missing going to football games and uh, and doing what I love best. I can imagine because, like, seeing what you do from the media um, point of view, you, you're in a heavy, aren't you? You know, you're, you're across different uh, media platforms and so on. And yeah, I, you know, I follow you on Instagram and, and we talk quite a bit. And you hear there everywhere, not just obviously in England, but covering the Champions League as well. So I can imagine that's been like a, a tough hit for yourself. Yeah, it's it's been very tough to be honest with you. I think um, my structure of a, of a week is that I'm busy pretty much five or six days of the week, which is why the way I like it. I like to be, uh, to be active. It's what I'm used to from coming out of the football world and being in everyday training and, and know what my schedule is. For me, that was the most important thing to try and replicate when I uh, retired from the game, was that I kept busy, that I kept sort of keeping my mind active and keeping my face in and around the football world. I think the travelling across Europe was great as well to go to different cities, see different places. I mean, what I'd give to go somewhere now just to, <laughs> to go and watch a football game abroad and jumping on a plane. I think when you're in that moment and you're going away for two, three days at a time, you can find it quite frustrating. But I'd give anything for that at the moment just to be able to, to, to travel for a couple of days watching football and, and reporting on the games and, and talking about them. But... Um, yeah, I think that's that's the difficult part at the moment is I, as much as it's the um, not doing it at the moment, it's the not knowing when it's coming back. I yeah. think that's the frustrating part for all of us is that it's that unknown and I think that's what's frustrating uh, a lot of people. Do you know, I, I think you just made a great point just listening to kind of your own feelings about your work and what you do. Do you think it's something that I know for me personally you know, being in this current situation and, and doing what I like love doing and that's being on the pitch. Do you think like it's being taken for granted 
just like how much we actually do love them things. And when it's kind of completely taken away from you, and it's like, what, what now? You know what I mean? And then you're itching. So in terms of the influence that, that this kind of crisis can potentially have on, on like everyone, academy players, like, you know, understanding how much they actually love their coaches, their academy, you know, the first team players, just the, the day-to-day being around the teammates, the training ground, the banter and everything else that comes with it. And someone like yourself in the media, it's, it's massive, isn't it? Just how much yeah, I think that's, that's the one thing I keep seeing on, in, on social media at the moment is I can't wait to play football with the lads again. I can't wait to be in the changing room again. Uh, like the girls and the boys are both the same. It's yeah. that camaraderie within the changing room. It's the, the fun, the banter, uh, the parents who are on the touchline watching, the fans who are in the stands watching their team. I think all that interaction is that something that we're desperately missing. It's something that we do take for granted. Um, and it's easily done. Yeah. Why wouldn't you take it for granted when it's there on a plate every day? I think from my point of view, I've seen it probably a little bit different. Not different, but when I retired from the game, um, I had to find something else to do. I couldn't go out and play football anymore. My body wouldn't wouldn't do it so I had to find a new interest whereas everything's been taken away from us now but we still can't do anything we can't find something else to do okay we can within our homes and we can start learning other things but um, when something's taken away from you like that the impact of it is huge going out and seeing your friends just socially going for a drink with them going for a bite to eat with them not being able to do them simple things I think is uh, something like you say is taken for granted and I think we'll appreciate it all so much more um, but how long will we appreciate it before we fall back into our old routine and we, we take it for granted again I think that's, that's the biggest worry is that we appreciate it for a small period of time and then life just continues as normal Absolutely and, uh, but as well just going back on yourself just before all this kind of happened I believe you were trained for the, for the London Marathon and, uh, yeah. and obviously so, that's, that's been postponed and so on so I bet you're really frustrated with that because I imagine obviously putting the hours and putting the effort into to, to train for something like that and that's been taken away I imagine that's been really frustrating yeah. well you have, you have a goal you have a drive something to aim for so I was probably in week 8 or 9 of training for the, the London Marathon of 16 weeks and um, the London Marathon's due in a couple of weeks now or what the date should have been Sadly, uh, it's been postponed till October and that was something that was keeping me fit. It was keeping me motivated and when you get that taken away, it becomes very difficult for you. But that's part and parcel of what's happened at the moment in lockdown. Um, we'll have to alter that and once the, um, the, the restrictions are lifted, then I'll get back into the routine of keeping fit and get, getting strong again. I think one of the biggest problems I've found is that not being able to go to the gym. I used to enjoy going to the gym. I used to enjoy just seeing other people working out and um, talking to people in the gym and, again, socialising naturally, whereas we, we don't even have that at the moment. So that's, that's a difficult thing. But, yeah, not nice. But I've, at least I've got another date and I've got something to look forward to in October. 100%. And as well, it's... Kind of, kind of ironic. Three of your former teams are really kind of in in a little bit more so. I think over you know what's going to happen not only just in the Premier League but in the Championship as well. So you've got Liverpool former team with yourself, you know, 
in a balance. The league's going to continue. That's what's kind of been said from yeah, UEFA. Uh, you've got Aston Villa, you know, battling for that relegation. And then you've got Leeds United. And they won the championship and I'm wondering what's going to happen, with, obviously, with the football league as well. So, you know, what's, what's your kind of take on, on that, Stephen, with the, the leagues kind of going forward? Uh, for me, everything has to finish. Um, when you... You think of a, a film trilogy or a trilogy of books. You don't read three quarters of the way through the first first book or watch three quarters of the way through the first film and jump onto the next book. That's the yeah. way it is when you when you think of the season. You're almost trying to finish a season, start another one without actually completing the first season or the previous season. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, there's no time frame on when the season will start again. There doesn't have to be a time frame on when it finishes because there doesn't have to be a time frame on when next season starts, if that makes sense. So for me, the most important thing is to find out who the winners are, who the losers are. That's what has to be done. That's what the sport, that's what sport's about. It's finding the winners and the losers. And for me, that's why it needs to be completed the season. And I don't agree with what the Belgium league have done where they finished their season and, crown their champions already I think it's um, that's an easy well say an easy way out it's probably caused a lot of problems as well but I think everything needs to be uh, everything needs to be finished when you think of the championship alone and what's at stake yeah. Leeds are in a position now where yeah they're in a great position of, of being top of the league and um, or in the automatic promotion places but so much is to play for and to be in that close to be a Premier League team after so long away from the Premier League, yeah. to suddenly just make a decision, well, we're not going to promote any teams and we're not going to relegate any teams. Teams deserve to be relegated because they were either not managed or coached properly, they didn't buy well within the Championship, or they simply, uh, in the Premier League, or they simply were not good enough. Why should they stay within the Premier League for them faults? And yeah. another team who's been superb, or another couple of three teams in the championship, who've been superb for a long, uh, more games within the season, don't deserve to then be promoted. Uh, for me, again, uh, it needs sorting out. And again, when you look at the championship in particular, and you know, we all know how hard that league is to, to kind of get out of. And, and these were in a similar situation to where they were probably at the same time last season. But yeah, didn't, didn't go up. I know they were starting to kind of fall away from the back end. So I think in the championship, even more so, there's, there's still you know a lot of games to kind of get through and, and, and like anything can happen. And, yeah, there's, there's so much to play for. I mean, if you go on a great run towards the end of the season, you look at Aston Villa last season, they won 11 yeah. games on the spin. Suddenly yeah. they got held into the playoff places where no one gave them a chance. And there's teams that will be thinking that now where they can go on a great run. Um, depending on how fit they come back and what have you. Leeds could easily drop out of it. So could West Brom. Fulham yeah. could be suddenly propelled into it. There's so much to play for and so much to happen is that it has to be played. Um, you can't just go on form of what happened during the season and, oh, Leeds were good enough to go up or West Brom were good enough. There's so much. that The championship's so competitive and so up and down is that there's so much more that can happen. One of my other former clubs, I look at Wigan. They were dead and buried four or five weeks ago. Then they go on this great run, propel themselves out of the relegation places, and suddenly 
they 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 need the season to continue. They want to well, they'll probably look at it now and go, well, it'd be great if it did end, but it can't happen because someone else in the bottom three could go on that run again, yeah. and they could get dragged back into it. There's so much that can happen. So um, yeah, it's one of them situations that does need sorting. I think the biggest concern from English football's point of view is that we're going to see clubs go bankrupt. I think that's the biggest worry. Um, and that, that's my concern is that if it doesn't start up soon, is there a sort of a safety blanket for them clubs where people are going to help them out? Uh, they're going to fund them for a while if, that, if that's what's needed. Um, but that's the biggest concern that I'm hearing is that there's a lot of clubs in trouble. And when you talk about clubs, just think about the, the knock-on effect that's going to have uh, within them clubs. You know, you talk about the staff, the fans, their academies, the pathways, you know, from... You, you, you've only got to look at somewhere, someone like Berry, you know, from last year. You know, a couple yeah. of 150 academy players, you know, released in and kind of free to kind of go wherever it's... I think, you know, when, when you see situations, I think people have got to kind of take into context the bigger picture, not just, oh, well, it's the first team and it's just going to be, it's only going to, uh, you know, matter first team players, coaching staff, staff around first team and so on. It's it's the, the bigger volume that's connected with those clubs as well. That's, that's the fear as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's huge. Um, there's so much at stake. It's... It's almost like when we when we look at teams that get relegated from either the Premiership to the Championship or Championship lower, there's always a knock-on effect. There's always jobs affected by it. Um, more often than not, it's the, the staff within the club. It's, yeah. it's not really the players. Players will uh, usually be sold to try and make up that difference of money and try and recuperate some money. But there's no opportunity to do that here. There's no money. There's no income stream coming in at all. There's only expenditure. There's only money going out every every day, every week, every month. But there's nothing coming in to, to top that up. So that's the biggest concern. I fear for uh, a lot of people who are, uh, are in that situation where they're not working, they're not getting paid, they're on furlough. But then if the club goes into administration or goes bankrupt, then that disappears. And it's, um, it's worrying times. It really is. Um, and that's where, as much as... It's difficult for the big clubs as well because they live within their means as well. They need to look after these so-called smaller clubs because they're the future of the game as well. We look at how many how many players that played in the World Cup for England and the Euros in the last couple of years have been on loan to those so-called smaller clubs, them feeder clubs. How many of those players were actually playing at those smaller clubs as well throughout the years and then worked themselves up into the Premier League? Everyone always talks about Jamie Vardy being the the, uh, the player who sort of went from rags to riches and, and worked his way through the leagues. We're seeing it so much more now. Um, there's so many players. Think of James Madison, who's also at Leicester. and He was at Coventry, then worked his way into Norwich, then worked his way up again to Leicester. These are all situations where um, we potentially could lose these clubs that are nurturing players for the future as well. 100%. It's a, it's a great point. And I, I think it, it's not just from the club's point of view and, and clubs going down. It's, it's how it affects the leagues and then how it affects the, the game in general, especially like you just touched on. Like you look at Harry Kane, how many long moves did he have, you know, before yeah. he, he hit the ground truly running at Spurs? So, no, it's a, it's a great point. And 
and hopefully we can all get through this kind of crisis and, and, and lockdown with you know touch wood with no teams kind of going through uh, bankruptcy and, and you know we'd like to think it you can just assume is is normal in, a, in an ideal world so but fingers crossed but like you said earlier on it's the unknown we don't know when it's going to end we don't know what's going to happen after it so it's just kind of you know just watch this space yeah. but so moving on now Stephen we're going to have a look at your kind of career we're going to move on to your career as a, as a whole, you know, starting right back through your academy days. And with Everleeds Academy, you know, we, we emphasise and we develop in, you know, youth players around the world, US, Africa, UK. Um, and also for all our listeners out there that, you know, are tuning in and, and watching this and, and listening to this. I think it's really nice to kind of let's kind of strip back the, the pro career to actually where, the, where it all started for you. Um, so talk us a little bit about your kind of when it did start from you, yeah, even probably before the days of the Liverpool Academy, grassroots and so on, and and kind of where did your love for the game kind of start from? Uh, my love for the game came from playing football uh, outside my house. Um, used to play with a few neighbours, my brother, um, and my brother was sort of three, four years older than me, but always bigger, stronger, faster. He was a good footballer. And he used to frustrate the life out of me when I used to play against him because I could never take him on, I could never tackle him. And he was sort of my, my benchmark to get better. Uh, I always felt that when I started being able to tackle him, being able to take him on in the street and doing well, that I was progressing. Um, then I started playing for my, my local sort of Cubs team, if you like. Um, and that was my first real taste of football, where we play indoor five-a-side, seven-a-side football. And um, I remember winning a tournament. God, I can't even remember what age it was now. It must have been sort of eight or nine when we won the tournament. And it was the best feeling uh, I'd ever had um, to, to know that, that, or get that buzz and that feeling was just incredible. And I, I, I realised probably at that tournament as well that I was a good player. I knew that I was better than most who were playing in the tournament. Um, so I think I just grew confidence from that. And then I started playing for uh, my the same team that my brother played for, which was Rufford Colts, uh, which were an Ormskirt-based team uh, where I grew up. And we just uh, I just started playing for the year, year older than me because uh, my age group didn't have a team. So I started playing a year up. I knew all the players because they were... Um, my brother's friends, brothers, if you like. So uh, I, I knew a lot of the players in the team, and it just—I just started playing football and enjoying it, and, and sort of trying to improve all the time. So whenever I finish football, I go home. I'd be kicking the ball against the wall constantly at the house, and trying left foot, right foot, and trying to, just trying to improve all the time. And then I ended up playing signing for another team because I wanted to play on Saturday morning and Sunday morning because I couldn't get enough of football. So I ended up signing for another local team as well uh, and playing uh, football on, on the weekends. And that was basically, basically my childhood growing up was football, football, football. And then it got to the age of, I think I was sort of uh, 11 years or 10 or 11 years old. And there was a, a manager at the time who looked after uh, a couple of teams in the area and he decided he wanted a, the best of the best of all the teams in the area 
and he was going to go and take them to uh, academies around the northwest. So it was the likes of Manchester United, Liverpool, Everton, Manchester City, Tranmere, and we were going to play against these teams uh, and try and compete against them. So when uh, we we first started, we went to to Everton. We played against Everton and uh, I scored a few goals and got asked to go for a trial at Everton. And that was my first sort of recollection of, of knowing that I was a, a good player or deemed a good player at, at that level to, to be good enough to be scouted by a club. I agreed to go to the trial and then uh, a few days later we played Liverpool. Um, I did really well against Liverpool. Um, we got beat quite heavily, I think, anyway. But I, pl- I thought I played well. I scored a couple of goals and things like that from midfield. And afterwards, I was waiting for that sort of nod again that I got at Everton and that, that sort of parents getting pulled and can we have a word? And it didn't happen. And I remember being on the way home and well, the whole team went to McDonald's on the way home and one of the coaches, Hugh McCauley, uh, he walked in and said, oh, we've been looking, been trying to find you. Uh, after the training session, we missed you, and we uh, or after the game, and we wanted you to uh, offer you a trial. And I was just absolutely delighted, if I'm being honest, I couldn't believe it. Um, but prior prior to that, <clears throat> I'd been on a, a soccer academy, and an ex-player called Alan Kennedy used to have a soccer yeah. school around the area. So you'd go to it in the summer. I remember them well. He used to yeah. have all around Kirby and Ormskirk. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Alan Kennedy. Yeah, they were the ones. So you try and get five stars, um, and they'd they sort of the five stars were defending, attacking, shooting, uh, heading, and all things like that. So there was a, a variety of things during the week, and I remember being one of the first players to get five stars, and Alan recommended me to to Liverpool, and nothing came of it. But what I didn't realise was I thought he'd put my name in, and they'd ring me the next day and say, right. You're coming for a trial, but the process was was you're on a list then of people that they'd keep an eye out for and they'd watch you. So yeah. when we played against Liverpool, my name was already on the list, and it was an opportunity for them to watch me. And um, yeah, and the rest is history. I got offered a trial, went to Liverpool, didn't end up going to Everton because I ended up signing at Liverpool. Interesting. So there was the one or the other, which is you know from a player from. Merseyside and you know any top academy players it, it was always usually the same story wasn't it it was either you know the blue side the red side and um, it's, it's interesting so tell me then when that call did come in and you are in there uh, you, you're going in for your trial with Liverpool Academy and um, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been a, the actual academy uh, location now it was that up at um, Madder Avenue uh, at the Finn Center yeah, it was a bit of a mix. Um, there was Mather Avenue, where, which is obviously, the, it's on Stanley Park, for those who don't know, which is situated in between uh, Anfield and Goodison. So there was a, an old school hall there, wasn't there? We used to train indoor on, uh, at Mather Avenue. And Dave Shannon was taking the session, I remember it clearly. Uh, Steve Highway was also there as well. And um, I remember going into the session, really, not knowing what to expect, because... When we trained at our, our local teams, we just played games. We didn't train as in do drills like everyone does now. It was just a, a bit of fun. You might do a little bit of shooting at the end and that was that. Whereas this was completely different. This was an organised session. This was working on technique. It was working on passing. It was 
Um, things that I hadn't seen before, but really enjoyed. I was nervous going into it. I was petrified that I wouldn't be good enough because um, I was a Liverpool fan and you always think, oh, what if I'm not good enough? What if, I don't, what if I don't do well enough? I remember coming out of the session thinking, I've nowhere near done enough there. And then after the session, it was, oh no, that's not it. And you don't finish off one session. We don't judge you off one session. This is a, a sort of a six-week trial period. Um, and then during that six weeks, there was, um, there was sort of games at Melwood as well, where the first team trained now. There was training sessions put on there. There was sort of areas that the first team weren't using that the young kids were allowed to, to train and play on. Um, so that was my first taste of, of going to where my heroes were as well, to go and watch, uh, to see where they trained and see the facilities and things like that. And uh, I think that just spurred me on even more. So after the, the six-week period was up of uh, my, my trial period, if you like, I was sent a letter in the post to say, congratulations, um, we want you to, to become a scholar at the club um, and we want you to be part of our, of our team going forward. So then, obviously, when that news came in, you must have been absolutely thrilled, um, you know, to someone like that. And again, you, you, you mentioned a couple of coaches, uh, that Hugh McCauley, Dave Shannon, you know, and of course, you know, Steve Highway is you know, pioneer, shall we say, around the, the academy kind of coaching system. You know, he'd been doing it for many, many years. You know, academies, Liverpool Academy, you know, in particular was the first academy. Uh, before the days of the academies, it was all centered with excellence. Just on those coaches alone, you know, Huey, Dave, Stevie, you know, what influence did they have on you? Uh, not so much as a player, Stephen, but also, a, you know, as a, you know, a kid, a young adult, um, you know, what, you know, how inspiration, uh, inspirational were them coaches to yourself? Well, I mean, they were everything. Um, they were the people that, knew your character inside out. They knew when you were having a bad day. They knew when you were uh, being cocky, being arrogant, that you needed to bring them back down a peg or two. That's what their skill was. Something when we look at coaches, we always think, will he improve me as a player? Will he make me better? Will that happen? But there's, such, there's so much more to coaching. There's understanding how people work, what makes them tick, how to bring the best out of them. And, and what does that? They were the they were the best at it. Um, Dave Shannon was probably um, the one for me who made me realise how hard I'd have to work uh, once I. So fast forwarding a bit, when I'd I'd gone into the academy, I broke my leg um, two or three times, and it was just the worst situation for me. And Dave pretty much gave up his life for I don't know probably six-week, seven-week period where he wouldn't even see his wife. He'd come back to me and it, it, it'd be, right, we're training tonight. We're, we're staying in later because I need to get your confidence back up. And I, I remember doing one-on-one -on -one sessions with Dave in the evening um, and just trying to build that confidence up in me. And he'd be having a go at me about certain things. And then other days he knew that I was down and he'd bring the best out of me. And um, that belief that he showed in me gave me extra drive to, to get back fit, to, to become a, a professional player because it showed to me how committed he was to me and how committed he was to the game and how committed I needed to be to the game and to the profession as well. Um, 
Steve Highway was always the, per, the, the coach or the person who would test your personality. He'd test whether you wanted it um, and whether you had it in you to fight back and um, whether you respected people, how you were brought up. Um, the, the life skills he gave me were, in, were incredible and still try and use them to this day. Uh, still try and speak to them, ask for advice as and when I can. Um, because they were huge in, in influences in my career. Um, Hugh McCauley was a little bit different for me, as in when I first broke through, he was more looking after the older ages. Um, and then I spent so long out of the game that I didn't get to work with Huey that much. But what I did, when I did work with Huey, it was the, the, the love and passion that he had for the game just built into his coaching. I had loved training every day when Huey was taking the sessions. Uh, he was moved up to uh, the first team squad when I was in and around it. And it was great to get a familiar face because when I wasn't playing or the first team players who weren't used at the weekend would often train on a Sunday or um, when they needed extra work, Huey was the person to, to train them. And he always made you smile going into it. He knew you didn't want to do it. He knew it was a tough period for you, but the way he picked you up and make you feel better about them sessions and put the put a lot of work into them to make them fun was uh, was was a quality attribute that uh, can often go unnoticed. You know, it's, it's just brilliant listening to all the, the different kind of outcomes and the different kind of personal, personalities within the coaches that have the kind of balance that, you know, met your needs, you know, from a, from a player through kind of personality, kind of shaping and like your etiquette about yourself and also with you know, someone like Dave, who's trying to instill the confidence, you know, to come back from those, you know, let's just say, you know, career-ending injuries in which they could have easily been for yourself, Stephen. When you talk about then that kind of situation with Dave, just kind of spending that extra time with you to do the, the self-confidence building, getting you back on the pitch, getting your, your, your attributes back up there and so on. At the time... How was that? Because I'm sure you're telling yourself, you know, you, you might have a lot of doubts. You've just come back from these, you know, major uh, injuries and so on. But now, like, kind of looking back, just how influential that those moments were uh, to you and, and kind of what it's done for your career as, as a whole. You know, that's that's pretty special when when you when you talk about it and when you think back. Yeah, if I hadn't have had the coaches that I had at Liverpool. I don't know whether I'd have made it. I, I really don't. Um, there was little things that happened. Um, so even when I broke my leg, um, the second time I had an operation, I had a steel rod inserted into the leg. And my leg was a mess before the operation. Um, I was due to sign a professional contract um, sort of two days before. Uh, so when I played the game on the Saturday and I broke my leg, I was due to sign my professional contract on the Monday after the game. So I'm lying in the hospital bed thinking, career's over, I'm not going to play again. Surgeon comes in and said, your leg's a mess, I can't guarantee you're going to play football again. So uh, I wake up after the operation, the, the surgeon comes in and he says, I've, I've given myself a 10 out of 10 on your operation. He shows me the before x-ray and the after x-ray. And even I couldn't believe how he'd done it. And he said, uh, it's the best job I could, I've ever done, really. The best repair. The following day, Steve Highway comes in 
with Rick Parry, who was chief exec at the time, and put the contract on the table and wow. said, right, there's your professional contract. There's three years. We believe that you're going to get back to where you were. And that's, that's what we expect you to do. So straight away, I'm sitting in my bed thinking, brilliant. Like that is exactly everything I need to hear. So again, it was, and I wasn't on mega money. It wasn't one of these contracts that was hundreds of thousands a week or whatever. It was, I think it was a couple of hundred quid a week or whatever it might have been. But it wasn't that to me. It wasn't about the money. It was about the, the contract and the belief in me. It yeah. was about the, the words of, we think we know you'll get back to where you were. We believe that you will make a, a living out of the game, whether that be at Liverpool or somewhere else. And for me, that was everything. Um, those nights I spent training with Dave alone, um, when you look back at them, if, someone, if, if I'd have gone to someone and said, can you train me for an hour every evening? or an hour and a half, I need to work on this, my confidence is low, it's not working. And they'd have turned around and said no. Well, I wouldn't have got back to where I wanted to be, as quick as I wanted to be. Um, my belief in the coaches would have diminished, it would have gone down. Would I have believed that I could get back to where I wanted to be? Probably not. So the influence that these guys had on me constantly was, was everything. The other thing that they did really, really well was that, they spoke to the other players about it. So when we went into training and I was fearful of going into tackles and I was worrying about that side of the game, the, the mental side of the game, the other players helped me along with that because they'd been spoken to by the coaches. I didn't even realise they'd spoke to them, but it was, listen, you're going to have to tackle them. We know you don't want to because you're fearful something will happen. But again, having the players' support, and but that again came from the coaches passing that on to them. So uh, the influence that the coaches have, I'll never, ever forget that um, to this day. It's just phenomenal. Uh, a lot of people say, well, that's the job. But it is the job to, to a certain extent. But to actually carry it through, to, to, to do the extra time, the extra hours, the extra belief in you, um, that meant so much to me. Yeah, and then talking then about kind of making the step to Melwood, which, am I right in saying that would have been through the days of Julier, towards the back end of the, the Julier era, era, or early Rafa, was it? Um, it was a, a bit of a mixture. So once I got back from um, my injuries, I broke into the reserve team and started playing a couple of games at reserve team level and played against Bradford in a, in a game. And after the game on the coach, um, I can't even remember who, it might have been Huey. Might have been Hugh McCauley came up to me and he said, listen, Bradford have actually just pulled us and been on the phone and they want to take you on loan. And there's an opportunity for you to go and play games. And I just thought, perfect, it's what I need. I need that challenge of playing against men, playing, playing in stadiums. I felt it was something that was desperately needed because at the time, reserve team football, I was only playing one game every couple of weeks. It was just the way it was scheduled and... More often than not, you get senior first team players who needed games, so they'd come down into the team and you'd be sort of pushed aside. So for me, it was a great opportunity to go and play championship football and uh, play at a decent level and, and try and prove my fitness a little bit. And also try and prove to myself that I was capable of playing at that level. So 
I uh, I went to Bradford for for three months and and played played there, um, and then I picked up an injury, and I came back and I was put back into Melwood then to train with the uh, the physios at Melwood, but then once I was fit, I'd train with the first team. So that was uh, under Julier and um, I, he, he sort of promoted me into that surrounding, if you like. And I, I think I've probably just outgrown the academy a little bit, my age and, and what have you. And then uh, the following season, I went to Coventry on loan. So I spent a full year on loan at Coventry. And when I had finished my year on loan, I was thinking I was going to sign for Coventry because I hadn't heard anything from Liverpool. Probably a couple of weeks before the end of the season, I got a phone call from the club saying that they wanted to see me. I came back and sat down with Phil Thompson and he just said, listen, we've been keeping an eye on you. We want to offer you a contract. We want you to be part of the first team squad next year, which was obviously music to my ears. Um, but then in that summer, uh, Gerard Houllier got sacked uh, or left the club and Rafa Benitez was, was brought into the club from uh, Valencia to oversee a new regime at the club. The, the great thing for me was that the contract was still on the table and that Rafa had seen me play, he'd watch videos, he was happy, he'd read the reports on me, and he wanted me to be part of the first-team squad. So that was my first real full-time involvement of going into the squad at Liverpool and being part of it. Um, we went to America on, on pre-season tour. Uh, we went to, I'm trying to think where we went now. So we went to New York, and then we'd venture out into sort of different places, Toronto, but always... New York was our sort of our hub and our base. But for me, that was my first real involvement at senior level at Liverpool and being in and around the first team. So then when you was around that first team, I'm sure obviously with some of the influences within the first team in terms of players, they don't really come much bigger than Jamie Carragher and, and Steven Gerrard, I'm sure for yourself, you know, local Merseyside boy, you know, playing for the, you know, a club like Liverpool. You know, what, you know, what kind of influence did they have on your kind of early career? And, and again, some of the other players as well that, you know, not necessarily that, you know, Liverpool or Merseyside, but you, know, you, you had some big, big figures within that team, you know, some hippie, uh, you know, Diddy Haman and so on. You know, what was that like for you to, to kind of be around some of those kind of key international players as well? Yeah, it was really good. Um, I think one of, the, one of the problem, well, not a problem, one of the things I always look back on, there was, a, there was a group of us promoted from the academy and rather than integrating more with the first team, I tended to stay around the academy players uh, because it was a comfort blanket, whereas really I should have gone and sat on the table with the senior players more often and picked the brains more often and, and asked them questions and tried to watch what they were eating, what, what they were doing. More often than not, again, you'd walk in, you'd see one of the younger lads and you'd just go and sit with them because you knew them inside out, you knew what the characters were like, so it was easy to do that. Um, but when, you, when you've got big players in, in that canteen or in the changing room or in the gym, you, you always watch them, you always keep an eye out for what they're doing and, and how they're improving and, and how they're, uh, they're trying to get better all the time. I think the culture's changed a lot now since that time I think senior players are more open with younger players I think they they're probably a little bit more guarded I think they were a bit more feared when I came through 
you all almost had to earn respect to speak to them um, a little bit more. Whereas now the culture is, is that senior players are desperate to help young players. They want to improve them. They want to help them. They want to try and teach them things. I don't think that was necessarily the culture as much when I was coming through. So uh, I think if, if my time was to come or if I could have my time again, I think that was, if, if I could do it in the era that it is now and, and just listen to players talk about things and try and learn from them, um, then I think I'd, I'd definitely be a better player for it. And then just like keeping on the subject of your, your career at Liverpool, uh, which you know went on, you know, for a few seasons with a team, and you know, you had some really good seasons. I think one of the seasons you you, know, you finished runners runners up, FA Cup winners um, around the Champions League uh, squad in two thousand and five, of course. Um, and then obviously, what was it? This, this, the Super Cup, victory that played in. Um, you know, how back now in your Liverpool career? How was it for you? Think could have, would you like to? I'm sure you would. But you the time to you know continue longer and if there was any kind of uh, things you would have done differently back then would it have been and, and what would it would be um i think in hindsight it's a lovely thing when you when you talk yeah. about like this and um the biggest thing i i wish i'd have learned was um i only found out when i was 30 34 that i had an intolerance to to dairy products I always used to break down around about the 60, 70 minute mark in games. I always used to cramp up and fatigue. And I, I think at Liverpool, definitely, the staff thought I wasn't fit enough and they were, that I wasn't strong enough. And that used to infuriate me because whenever we used to do pre-season and, and running sessions, I was, I was comfortable. I found it easy at times and um, I was one of the fittest players. But then come the game, I'd really struggle. I was sort of vomiting on the pitch and things like that. And I used to think, well, it's just because of all the drinks and everything that I have before a game, all the sugar, and it's almost like you put it in your stomach and it's washing about and it's all coming together. And that was why I was feeling ill and that's why I was cramping up. And like I say, when I found out when I was 34 that I had an intolerance, uh, I did a test for it. And from 34 to 36, I never got cramp again, or 33 wow. might have been. So I always look back and think, if I'd have known that when I was at Liverpool, that I had an intolerance and I'd have been fitter, stronger, um, been able to last games, what would my Liverpool career have been like? Because I, I know there was times in games where I'd get subbed because they were thinking, right, he's going to fatigue now. It's going to hit 60, 70 minutes and there's a chance that you'll cramp up or he could cost us a game. I know there was times where I wouldn't get picked because they'd probably think that I wasn't fit enough and I wasn't strong enough. And that, that to me is my biggest regret at Liverpool. That's my biggest frustration. I'm not even at Liverpool. At clubs like Aston Villa and Blackburn, going forward, Leeds, I always think I knew I was better than a 60, 70 minute player. But even in my head, going into a game, I'd think, I hope I get past 60 minutes today. And then when it got to 60, I'd think, please get me past 70. If I get to 70, please get me past 80. And they're things that I shouldn't even be thinking going into a football game. I should be thinking completely different. I should be thinking, what, how can I affect this game and what can I do? But in the back of my mind, I always had this mental battle with my fitness that was a worry to me before every single game. Um, and players are, are so much more fortunate now with sports scientists and how they've evolved and, and, and the way they are. 
But even being a, a huge club like Liverpool, um, they didn't recognise it. They always said it was down to, uh, I've got quite big bulky legs, as in like mus- muscular legs, calves and quads and hamstrings. And everyone always used to say, oh, it's just because of the size of them. You need to make them even stronger. You need to make them fitter. And, and it, it, never, it never worked. So, uh, yeah, that's probably my, my biggest regret as a player, not only at Liverpool, but throughout my career. And so when did that? So how did you kind of with the test to kind of you know to find that out for yourself? Did that come out of club or was it just a test that you done privately? And that's because that's yeah. So I, yeah, I was at Derby uh, playing at Derby County, and um, the manager had just left, and the the manager who came in said that he didn't want me to stay. He said if I could leave. So I got asked to go to Wigan. So I went to Wigan on loan for the, the last three months of the season or two months of the season. Um, and at the end of the season, we had a lady come in uh, to talk about um, food, proteins, what to eat over the summer. So after the meeting, I just pulled her and I just said, uh, I've got an issue with my diet. I said, I, I cramp up all the time. And I said, obviously, I'm getting to an age now where I want to try and prolong my career. Is there anything I can eat or drink or do? And she literally just turned around and says, well, you've got an intolerance to something. And I thought, well, she said that's so blasé, as if like, like it's just a normal thing. So I said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, that's what happens. So anyway, she broke it down to me much better than I can break it down to anyone else. Um, but basically, when, you, when you've got an intolerance to something, to pass that intolerance out of your system. So say for me, like it's milk, it's dairy, so ice cream, butter, anything like that. If I was to eat that, it'd run through me quite easily. It'd give me headaches. It'd make me go to the toilet a lot looser. Uh, it'd give me belly ache, and it'd make me feel almost not there as well. I'd almost be within myself. So that process takes anywhere between three and four hours to pass through your system. And then you basically reset again. So before a game, I was getting up in the morning. I'd have porridge with milk. I'd have toast with butter on. Because these are all things that I was told growing up were sources of energy that you need. Um, and I was still getting told this, even when I was at Derby, that you need to have a milkshake before a game or butter because these are butters that will, yeah. or these are fats that will store later on during the game that will give you energy. And um, she basically just said, it's not true. So what I'll do is I'll send you a test out and I'll, I'll, um, I'll give, you, give you the results as quick as I can. Usually it takes anywhere to, between a week and two weeks. Well, the season had finished, so it wasn't a problem for me. I thought, yeah, that's fine, no problem. So I'm on holiday and I'm eating an ice cream and she rings me and she says, you might want to put that down. So I was like, why? And she went, You're, you've got an intolerance to dairy. So I was like, okay, so what does that mean? So she started listing the foods that I couldn't eat anymore. And I was like, God, this is going to be a nightmare. How am I going to, how am I going to get on? So anyway, I sort of processed it, worked it out, went back in, uh, into pre-season. Or, well, about a week, a week before pre-season started at Wigan, they were doing uh, running sessions for some of the players just to get them up to speed for the pre-season. And I went and... Um, Straight away, the fitness guy said, my God, how much weight have you lost? And you look dead trim. And I started doing the running and I was flying. And he yeah. just said, I can't believe how fit you look and how, how strong you, you seem. 
and um, I never got cramp again. Never suffered from it again in uh, for the rest, like for the next couple of years of my career. Um, and that is something that will will haunt me for the rest of my days because I always think, what could have been? And it's just, it's mind blowing exactly, you know, what what could have been and so on. And it just kind of goes to show, doesn't it? You know, talking, you know, someone like yourself who kind of made uh, the academy kind of graduation from the early two thousands, and you know, we're we're like kind of nearly. You know, 20 years on to, to kind of where the game is, well, where it was then to where it is now and just in kind of the resources and uh, the, the extra departments. As you know, back then it was just a coaching department, yeah. new videos and uh, a treatment table and there you go, but to where it is now. So to yourself, uh, you know, uh, you know well-respected, well uh, you know, pundit, you know, top ex professional player. How have you seen the game grow, uh, Stephen, from from when you started playing it to, to where it is now? From, from let's just say from a player's point of view, um, you know, how have you seen the game evolved over the last twenty years? Um, I think it's it's evolved in, in many ways. I think players have obviously got fitter and stronger, and that comes from the science the scientific part of the game that's improved as well. That's been brought into the game. I think one of the huge things that was sort of creeping into the game when I was playing, it was the mental side of it. Um, how do you deal with knockbacks? How do you deal with people booing you? Um, I think social media has become a huge part of, of football these days as well, whether it's players looking at their accounts or interacting with fans and, and that side of the game. I think that, that's changed massively as well. But I think what we're seeing uh, from players especially is that there's a huge imp improvement when I was an academy player I used to train on a Tuesday and a Thursday night for maybe an hour and a half tops and then we'd play one game on a Sunday and that was our that was our week of football whereas now you, you've got play and the youngest player I think the youngest intake at my, when I was playing was under 10s under 9s or under 10s so pretty much a nine-year-old was the youngest intake. Now I'm seeing five and six-year-olds in academies and they're training every night of the week or five, five nights a week and then there's a game at the weekend. And these, these hours of working on technique as left foot, right foot, headers, volleys, just little things. I think we're seeing more technical players coming through, um, through the systems and I'm making it to, to the senior teams. And, and I think that's a a huge thing for them. My fear when that first happened was that there was going to be a burnout of players and players would get frustrated by it. So again, it comes down to the coaches keeping it different, mixing it up, keeping it interesting. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's a huge thing is that you don't want, as much as you want repetition, there's got to be repetition in, in different ways. You've got to try and find a fun way of doing it without players thinking I've done this for the last four or five years and it's all we do. Finding different ways is, is a challenge to a, to a player as well as a coach as well. And, uh, and then things can bring the best out of you. So there's, there's, there's loads of little changes within the game. Um, the, the biggest thing is, is that there's only, it's, it's the same old game, but uh, there's little tweaks here and there that are, are trying to improve it uh, year upon year. And it, it, it's a great point what you, you, you've, you've talked about, about 
like I think the academy systems over the last kind of 10, 15 years have kind of adopted more technical programs, uh, philosophies within their kind of cultures, shall we say, and environments. And you are starting to see the rewards from some of the players that are coming through, especially the English players. When you, you look around now, you know, you, you've got you know, your Madison's, your Mason Mounts, um, you know, there's an array, your Rashford's, you know, a lot of top attack players that are, that are, you know, breaking through the system that are, you know, technically gifted. Um, you, you know, some may say it's, it's, you know, something that this kind of country has lacked for many years in terms of them type of players. You know, when we look back at the, the guys and the John Barnes of the world and the, the Waddles and the Huddles, you know, they were, they were the Mavericks, weren't they? That's what they yeah. were as, you know, technically gifted and, you know, do things without thinking about it. I think you are starting to see more academy players uh, break through and, and start to come through the actual system now based on some of those programmes. Talking about that then, in terms of like England as a whole, the, the national team, you experienced England uh, as a player yourself, you know, in the, in the 2010 World Cup, South Africa. Uh, you know, what was that experience for you, you know, to be around some of them players and, you know, what was, what was the experience like, Stephen, you know, with uh, you know, the, the, the coaching and, you know, this, you always had this kind of club first country uh, issue going off and so on. You know, what was the whole experience for you like around the international setup? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first off, it's, it's one of them moments where you're deemed as one of the, the best 23 players in the country to represent your country at a World Cup, which is a dream uh, that you grow up hoping to achieve. And uh, just to be part of it was was massive, not only for me, but again, for the coaching staff at the academy, uh, all the, the managers, the coaches I'd worked under for, for many years, not only at Liverpool, but even my local football teams, my school team, everything about it, because everyone's contributed in some way, whether... Um, whether every little bit of information's gone in or not, they something will have resonated with you that you thought, yeah, I like that. I, I appreciate that and I get that. So there's so many coaches uh, uh, over the years that will have been uh, probably as proud as I was that I'd made that squad. The squad I I went into was so rich with with talented players. I mean, you, you, you're talking some of the best players in world football at the time. You're looking at Rooney Gerrard, um, and John Terry, Rio Ferdinand. One of the biggest problems that we had going into the tournament or as, as we got to South Africa was the injury to Rio Ferdinand uh, because it changed the dynamic of, of everything, the way that we wanted to play. Rio was always the player that stepped out of defence with the ball and, and started attacks off. And um, Fabio Capello never really settled on a centre-back after that. Jamie Carragher played the first game. Matthew Upson played as well. And he never really settled on anyone. I think Ledley King played as well, but that picked up an injury. So for John Terry, it was probably frustrating not to know who his, who his partner was going to be all the way through that. The coaching side of it was, I was excited because it was Fabio Capello, multiple winner of um, leagues in Spain, in Italy, a legend of the game, understood it inside out. And for me, it was one of them where you go away and you think this is a, the opportunity of a lifetime to work with one of the best coaches in world football and understand what what it takes to to get things out of players and what it takes to 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 be a better player by listening to what he has to say. From my personal point of view, from playing, 
I knew it'd be very difficult to get a game because I had the best left back in world football ahead of me and Ashley Cole. Um, and again, for me, it was someone to learn from every single day in training. How does he go about things? How does he, how does he get better? Um, Ash was naturally one of the fittest players and naturally gifted players uh, that I'd ever seen. But God, he worked hard off the pitch as well in the gym and things like that. Um, so he, uh, he opened my eyes as well. Uh, to try and be a better player and, and, and understand that. I think I, I understood my role within the camp as well. I, understand, I understood that I wasn't going to play and that I was there to help the other players prepare for games. I think that's something that was important to understand straight away, was that you can't get disheartened because you're not going to play. This was an opportunity to have a front row seat at a World Cup finals, which many people would <laughs> dream of. I grew up watching sort of Italia 90, the World Cup in the USA. Uh, and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to, to go. I even wanted to just go as a fan to watch it. And there I am, my first World Cup as a fan, being sat on the bench for England as well, watching it firsthand, listening to people talk in the changing rooms, listening to the players. How every... If you think about a changing room when you go away with England, so suddenly you've got... Uh, You've got Paul Robinson, who's a goalkeeper. Uh, no, not Paul. Uh, sorry, you had um, Stephen Gerrard, who was captain for Liverpool. You had John Terry, who was captain for uh, Chelsea. Wayne Rooney, who was probably not captain for Man United, but captain material. Yeah. Um, you had so many captains within that changing room. Ledley King was captain at Tottenham. And you look at all these captains within the changing room, and everyone wants to say their part before the, before the game. And they're all speaking and they're all giving out information. And for me, it was like mind-blowing to see how each one of them worked because I ended up being a captain later on in my career. And I remember thinking, God, all these bits that you can take in off all these players and try and learn how they go about things. Some of them were really quiet and just sat back and let the, the football do the talking. Others were vocal within the changing room as well. So for me, having that first-hand experience in the changing room and on the, tra on, the, on the training pitch as well to work with these players day in, day out for probably a period of around about six or seven weeks with the training camp involved before the World Cup as well was, uh, was brilliant. And what were your first impressions then from when you've been called up to England and here you are, you know, the best of the best within the country, you know, you've probably already played, you know, either with or against pretty much anyone that's all in the camp. But kind of being kind of up close to them and, and being working with them on the training pitch, you know, what kind of stood out for you? You know, what players that you thought, you knew they were good, but you didn't realise they were this good? Uh, I remember um, the first time I got a call-up for, uh, for England, I was actually at Liverpool. And um, I went with Jamie Carragher in the car to London. And we were picking Stevie Gerrard up and Cara said to me in the car on the way, he said, you think Stevie's good in training at Liverpool? He said, wait till you see him in England. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, he's got a point to prove. He said, because every time he turns up, there's Frank Lampard, there's Paul Scholes, there's people that think that, or fans anyway, and people's opinions, they want to know who the best is. And Stephen always wanted to prove that he was the best. 
And I remember the first training session and I walked off and I said to Cara, I didn't think he had it. I didn't think he could get any better. And he's just got better. And he said he does it every single time he comes away with England. So there was a there was almost a, a determination within players themselves to prove that they were the best at England as well. And that was something that sort of stood out to me was that prove why you're there, show people why you're there. Yeah, they see you week in, week out in the Premier League, but we all have a perception of certain players and what they're like. Try and prove to people what you're like. Um, and I remember when we went away to... Uh, where was it now? We were, we were away somewhere. I think we were actually in Doha. In Doha um, and we were playing Brazil. And Wayne Rooney picked a ball up. Just literally walked onto the training pitch. And he went crossbar on the half volley. And he literally dropped it. Cross, half volley, crossbar, smashed it off it. I thought, not bad. I went, go on then, do it again. Half, half, got the ball, half volley, crossbar, just did it again. <laughs> My God. I'm laughing to myself thinking, God, this guy's frightening. But he, he was one that I was, I was desperate to watch, desperate to see how good he was. And me, with me being a defender as well, coming up against him and playing against him, you realise why they're so good, the touch, the, the movement. How they, but they're, they're always wanting to study. They're always asking questions. You often think of like the best players in the world being arrogant and not wanting, to, uh, not wanting to ask questions because they think they know it all. They're the players who ask the most questions. You always find that. You always find that the, the greatest players will ask more because they can take in more and they want to be more. No surprise to kind of hear that, but just to kind of to get an insight that yet again, there's always that extra kind of level of improvement and, and kind of mental strength, mental power to, to want to be that, you know, <laughs> well explained in terms of, you know, what, what you just said there about, you know, Steven Gerrard and the likes of Wayne Rooney and so on. But so to kind of moving forward now, kind of going beyond your kind of playing career to, to where it is now, Stephen, as a you know, fairly well respected, you know, pundit, made the all uh, over, you know, BBC, BT, Sky and so on. You know, was that always kind of planned for you, you know, towards the back end of your playing career that that was, you know, uh, the way you wanted to kind of go after um, playing football or was coaching ever kind of the table for you? You know, what's your kind of decision making? And like, because... I think when you get many players that are coming towards the end of the careers, I'm sure they're starting to consider kind of life after football. And like yourself, you needed that kind of quick fix to kind of, you know, keep it, keep yourself going, knowing that you know, the day-to-day of being on the football pitch wasn't going to be. You know, so how was that all kind of for you in terms of decision-making after the game, after your playing career? Um, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that even during my playing career, probably I remember working for LFC TV um, when I was at Aston Villa, I covered a game for Aston Villa versus Liverpool at um, at Villa Park for the under 23s, and it was when Raheem Sterling was playing for the under 23s at Liverpool, and um, it might have even been it might have even been the under 18s. And I remember doing a, a co-commentary on the game, and after the game, someone spoke to me from LFC TV and said, "Oh, we we really thought you were good at that. We enjoyed listening to you." Would you be willing to do any more? And I said, well, I would, but I live in Birmingham, so it's very difficult for me to do more stuff. Yeah. So when I, when I moved back to the area, 
um, LFCTV got back in touch and just said, would you be interested in doing any more work? And for me, it was an opportunity just to, to try something um, and try and see if I enjoyed it. And I did. So I, I, I sort of did it from the age of around about 30 onwards. I, I kept on doing little bits and pieces for LFCTV, whether it was co-commentaries or uh, doing shows about things, um, yeah. talking about games and things. And I just, it came naturally to me. I, I didn't think... I didn't think much of it until people spoke to me about it afterwards. And then um, towards the end of my career, I was, at, um, I was at Bradford and I got asked to go to Five Live to do a radio show. They'd, they, they were interested in what, well, would I be interested in doing a radio show for them? So I went in and did a radio show, really enjoyed it. And afterwards came out and they said, um, we really enjoyed having you on. Would you be willing to come back in next week? So I thought, yeah, cool, that, that'll do me. So went and did another show on the radio, went really well. And then they offered me uh, a, a job on the TV, or not a job, but just a show, and said, we have a show called Match of the Day 2 Extra, which is almost like a radio show where people sit around and they discuss subjects and things that happened. And I did that, and from that, it snowballed. Um, it was shown on uh, BBC Two um, about midday-ish on, on a Sunday. And people picked up on it and thought I'd done well. Um, it hit the BBC website and um, people started viewing it. And then I just started getting more and more radio work within the BBC. And I was driving one, one afternoon on the way. Uh, I was on my way into Liverpool and I got a phone call from um, Five Live saying, have you thought about what you're going to do next year playing-wise? And for me in my head, I was thinking, I'm carrying on playing. Yeah, and that was what I'd thought in my head, and he just turned around and he said, "Well, if you were to stop playing, would you think about coming into the radio or, or coming into the media side of it? Because we think you'd do really well at it. And if you do decide to sort of call it a day, we've got plenty of work for you." And I literally just had a thought in my head and went, "Yeah, I'll do it." So he was like, "What do you mean?" I said, yeah, I'll retire at the end of the year, then I'll come in and do the media stuff. And it was just something that felt right within me yeah. uh, that I thought, no, that's the right thing to do. And uh, I announced my retirement at uh, Bradford and said, I think it was around about the April time, I said, I'm going to retire at the end of the season. It was something that I felt was, was the right thing to do. And then um, in the next coming couple of weeks, I got offers from uh, Sky Sports News to go in there and do a couple of shows and then it just snowballed and yep. I, I just kept on getting more and more interest I was still doing LFC TV as well and um, I, I was really enjoying everything I was doing and fortunate for, fortunately for me it's just taken off and uh, and I love it and I'm and I'm enjoying every minute of it. So then talk us about your, 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 the pundits that you work alongside with you know it's I think you, you, and you work with quite a few, you know, different platforms and so on. And is there, is there, I don't want to, is there any pundits that you, you kind of look up to? Is there any kind of pundits that you, you really like working alongside and so on? And, you know, is there, is there any pundits that you, you enjoy like having that little bit of banter and so on? Like you see, you know, for whatever reason, Carragher and Keane <laughs> just at this. But it's great. It's great TV. It's like, you know, for me, you know, it's too, 
you know, diehard football fans that are just, you know, sharing their opinions on the game? You know, yeah. what pundits do you like to work with? I think it depends what platform you're on. Uh, radio is very much more relaxed. Uh, you can have more open discussions and you can talk more on the radio. So when you're, when you're in a discussion, it, it can often be interesting who you're working with in the room and, and the diversity of the, the, the discussion that can, can open up. And you've got more of a platform to talk on the radio. But my, my biggest sort of eye-opener and biggest learning curve was when I, I did Match of the Day 2 um, with Alan Shearer. So I, I'd always liked listening to Alan Shearer. And I thought over the last four or five years, he just got better and better. So when I had the day to spend with him and, and watch what he was doing and how he learned things was, was brilliant for me. And I remember going into the, uh, the editing suite. So what happens on the show is, is that you'll watch the, the games on the Sunday and there may be three games on. So I'd do a game, Alan would do a game, and then the other one we'd do together and we'd try and sort of pinpoint things that we'd like to pick out of the games. And um, I remember going into the editing suite and they, they showed me my clips and I was, I was watching my clips and I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they showed Alan his clips and then all of a sudden he just went into full match of the day mode and he was like, yeah, and this is the great ball into here and look at the hold up play. Then he brings others into play. Keep your eye on this out the corner of the screen coming in. And I was thinking, what's he doing here? And he was, he was practicing straight away. He was live in his head of how he wanted to replicate the show. So yeah. next thing is, I went, play my clips again. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, look at this ball into here. And yeah. suddenly, he looked at me as if to say, that's what you need to do. And um, it was the biggest learning curve for me because I was sort of probably in, in my shell a bit, a bit nervous being in around him. And Gaz, a, a legend of the, the Premier League and the game and what he's done on TV now. So I was probably a little bit within myself, but... What it, what it taught me was not to be embarrassed about the way that we work and what brings the best out of us. It was that you need to practice whether you're the best at what you do and you need to make them mistakes before you go out. It's almost like a training exercise. It's almost like a training week going into, into a game. Get out all, all the bad bits during the week and practice on them. And then when you come live on, on the show, there's nothing that's going to catch you by surprise. You're going to be ready for it. So to work with him and to understand the way he worked was brilliant. Um, so he's, he's probably been the one that I've sort of learned the most off straight away. But then there's other people that as well where they're so naturally comfortable in front of a camera, even that the way they sit, the way they, the, the body languages, the way they bring it across. So for me, it, it's, I try and watch people all the time, constantly. I often find myself not listening to them but watching them as well and then there'll be other times where I won't watch them I'll just listen to what they've got to say uh, trying to study little things all the time constantly um, but the, the one person that or not just the one but I, I you talk about people who I admire and listen to yeah I love listening to Glenn Hoddle like Glenn Hoddle's commentary co-commentaries are brilliant the insight he brings you into a game is exceptional um he'll he'll try and simplify things for the viewers and the listeners of what he's talking about so for me glenn hoddle's like from that side of it on a co-commentary point of view he's, he's magnificent 
I love listening to Lee Dixon as well. I know he's huge at uh, NBC out in America. Um, but Lee does a lot of England games for ITV. Yeah. And when you listen to Lee and his tactical analysis of how he breaks things down, um, Lee Dixon's absolutely brilliant at it as well. I think you, you, you talked on about Glenn Hoddle there, and he's probably one that I really admire and, and I really listen, sorry, enjoy listening to in his co-commentary because he's had a lot of the time, and no surprise to someone like Glenn Hoddle, he, he, he talks about the technique rather than just like the, the game flow, about the tactics and so on. Of course, that comes natural when, you, when you're doing your co-commentary, but you know a lot of the stuff that he does kind of really emphasise on is the technique of certain things, where the ball striking, receiving skills, all the things that Glenn Oddle was, uh, let's say, a natural at. You know, I, I just love listening to, listening to him go through like the breakdown and how hard it is and so on. So, but uh, so then to yourself, then Steve. So you can't see yourself swapping the microphone for a set of cones uh, anytime in the future. Do you know what I really do? Um, yeah. yeah, I enjoyed my time out in Salt Lake uh, training. Um, the various groups and, and being on the pitch, and I got a real buzz from it. Um, I, I have got my my B license, my A license is something that I'd look to do. Um, I, I'm keen to do it. I think learning another language, like I say, trying to learn Spanish will will help me as well uh, in the future for coaching, um, wherever that might be. But it, it's definitely something that I want to do. Um, as much as I I'm enjoying the media side of things at the moment. I'm constantly watching teams, how they warm up, how they how they do certain things, how they play the tactical side of things. I don't just turn up and go, oh, pick me pick me microphone up now and just talk about the game. I try and study the team for a, for a few games before I I sort of talk about them and, and understand what they're about. So trying to see the formations, what what players are doing, how the um, how the work, the relationships are on the pitch, and things like that. Again, trying to give the viewers or the listeners that insight into the game and and, and understanding a little bit. So, um, but I do think uh, being out on the pitch is something that will happen in the future. Um, when that will happen, I'm not too sure yet. Maybe when people get fed up of listening to me or uh, watching me on the TV. I don't think that'll be any time soon, to be honest, Stephen. You're doing such a great job at that. But then, as you just mentioned earlier on there, you, you, you came out to, uh, to the US last uh, last summer with Seven Elite Academy. Um, done some coaching sessions along with myself and other coaches. You know, How did you find that experience? Because not only did you, you just work with the, with the, the boys, you've also done sessions with the girls as well. So how was that experience for you? Yeah, it was brilliant. Uh, I loved it from, from start to finish. I think it was... Um, in a way, a little bit nerve-wracking for me because I haven't been put in that environment, environment many times before. Um, obviously, during your coaching badges, you are. But then I think once I, I got on the pitch, I mean, you might might find have a different opinion on this, but I, I settled into it really quick. I found that I enjoyed giving people little bits of information and trying to help them with things and, and trying to improve them. Um, I, I think the the buzz I got from it was something that I didn't expect to get. Um, the enthusiasm from uh, the boys and girls that when they trained, turned up to a training session, they understood that the time and effort that's gone in behind the scenes to create that session. I think that was important as well. But um, the facilities and everything that we had 
were, were, were perfect for what you're trying to achieve. And um, I, I just thoroughly enjoyed my time. And also you've done some bits as well, you know, here in, in the UK, in, in Liverpool with a few of our grassroots teams as well. And, you know, and some of the boys that I, that I still, you know, work with, still see quite a lot, they, you know, they still talk about that experience and some of the advice that you give them. And, you know, what would you, what from, from like to, to all our listen, listeners on here, and I'm sure we've, we're going to have a young audience uh, listening and, and watching this kind of online masterclass session. You know, what, what kind of advice we kind of give to grassroots players in particular that are not in academy systems? Um, I mean, practice, practice, practice. I mean, keep re repeating what you're doing. Um, try and, I mean, I'm, I'm probably my own biggest critic here, and I shouldn't probably say it, but practice both feet. I thought I had a good enough left foot not to use my right foot, and it was probably one of the regrets of my career was that I didn't work on it enough. Try and perfect both feet as much as you can because you'll find situations on the pitch so much more comfortable, so much more easier. Um, but enjoy the game as well. Don't, don't think you've got to be something that you're not. Just try and enjoy it. Go out every day with a smile on your face on the pitch and, and enjoy it. Run round until you, you sink into the ground pretty much because uh, if you don't do that, if you don't enjoy the game, then you won't get better. Uh, you've got to enjoy it. Keep asking questions. Uh, the more questions you can ask uh, of your coaches, the more they'll want to improve you. Um, I was often told, or I was told by uh, coaches at Liverpool, the moment we stop talking to you, you start to worry because either you've lost interest or we've lost interest in you. So keep talking to the coaches and keep trying to, to make yourself a better player. Great, and I'm sure obviously many of our listeners and uh, an audience from this will will take a lot from that advice, Stephen. And, and listen, just you know, from a from a personal note, from everyone at Elite Academy, we really appreciate the, the work that you do with us, and 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 you know taking this time out to kind of you know share this, an insight into your career and the advice and your opinion on the game because it does it truly really matters. And I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are going to take a lot from this uh, online session and also. From from part of myself and, and uh, the WhatsApp and Elite Academy, you know, uh, it's it's been a great session and I've absolutely enjoyed it. And I uh, just want to thank you for your time again. No, thanks for having me on. I'm looking for uh, like I say, I enjoyed my time uh, out in America. Enjoy trying to give back what little I can to, to everyone else. And if someone takes a little bit of advice or a little bit of something out of today, then uh, it's been worth it.